turning, I'm still uh, sort of knocking out some of the cobwebs from the men's fishing trip that I experienced. It was sort of an all-day um, thing, getting up at 4.30 in the morning and went out to Talkeetna. How many of you men are here this morning? God bless you for being here Yeah, the, we're at the Talkeetna trip. It's a great time. I would encourage you to jump into those things. Uh, it's good to bond with men, and we caught a few silvers, but a lot of uh, dogfish that were sort of um, dogs. But, you know, I, I have some pink under my fingernails from dipping my hand into the salmon eggs, so it's not a fashion statement, I assure you, but we did have a, a good time um, being together as men. And, hey, how about Ron's beard? If you guys didn't know, that was Pastor Ron Witt who was up here, and uh, we like that. Um, I'm really uh, thankful for him and more importantly, as we uh, have just um, sort of waved goodbye to the hedges, thank you for being part of our ministry and our lives together. Um, what an expression of love that you gave to us. All right, we're going to look now into James chapter 4. James chapter 4, we're starting a new section and a new theme, but it connects directly with where we've been in James chapter 3. And it's under the title of Ending the War. Ending the War. And this will be probably, for sure, a three-part series working through verses 1 through 10. But let me start by reading verses 1 through 4 this morning. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is God's word. This is God's word that transcends time. You know, as the old preacher from the United Kingdom, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, he said that no matter if nowadays you can go someplace, a man can go someplace at 400 miles an hour in a plane or walking four miles an hour back in the New Testament time, the issues remain the same in his life when he gets to a place. This text is sort of James's way to reopen the church's heart to take a look inside and to examine themselves. James 3, 13 begins with a question where he's asking, who's wise and who has understanding about you as a church? And here he's saying, what quarrels and what causes fights among you? He's getting the church to say, hey, let's look around and take the pulse of the spiritual condition of what's happening. And what he's bringing up in this section has to do with warfare that was going on infighting, squabbles, and literally the word quarrels in verse 1 is the word warring or wars. Why is there warfare going on in the church is what he's bringing up. Thinking about this text this week as I applied it to my own life and as I thought about you as the flock and how this could apply to your own lives individually, I was remembering one of the tragedies of our nation that happened in the 1800s, and that is the bloodiest battle in our nation's history, the Civil War. And I was thinking about how much damage and how much wreckage came from that 
fight from that four-year battle, 1861 to 1865. You have the North fighting the South. 360,000 people. No, I'm sorry. Let me make a correction there. 620,000 people died. It's amazing. On average, 10,000 people would die poor battle as it would wage for four years. 51,000 people died at the war at Gettysburg alone. And the death toll was split almost 50-50 between the North and the South in that battle. Why was this such a bloody battle? Why did this go on and rage for those years and amount to that kind of death toll? I think for this reason, it was an internal conflict. It was a conflict that was cutting at the soul and heart of our nation, and our nation was battling itself. I was reading about the terms of surrender that were offered to General Robert E. Lee by Ulysses S. Grant, and how they were trading notes sort of as exhausted leaders in Virginia at that time, wanting this thing to come to an end, and how both of them were talking very respectfully to each other because they were sobered and worn out as leaders of battles where so many people had died, and they were, they were expressing to, the, to each other how we want peace, we both want peace desperately just for the sake of more people not having to die in this warfare. General Ulysses S. Grant being 44 at the time, Robert E. Lee about 15 years older, they met together in Appomattox, Virginia in a home setting, both exhausted, both coming to see if they can close the war and bring it to an end. Robert E. Lee came to surrender, but he was coming to meet with a General Grant who was just haggard. I mean, the the picture and the description of that room scene was one of sobriety, of exhaustion, and sort of exasperation over what had transpired over the years. General Robert Horace Porter was there, and he wrote regarding this event. He said, we entered and found General Grant sitting at a marble table, top table in the center of the room, and Lee sitting beside a small oval table near the front window in the corner opposite to the door by which we entered and facing General Grant. Listen to this. We walked in softly and ranged ourselves quietly about the sides of the room, Very much as possible, people entering into like a sick chamber when they expect to find the patient dangerously ill. This was not a scene of one side getting the victory and doing the touchdown dance. This was a scene of of tremendous grief and suffering and wreckage and damage that had come from inner conflict people battling things in their own souls as they battled against each other in this bloodletting war. And you know what? It's a picture of what we go through when we battle ourselves in the Christian community. And that's what James is addressing here. This is the early church. This is the first letter of the New Testament that was written to a people who were early in the launching of the New Testament church. James is a picture of what the book of Acts continues into. 
The early church, the, the early Christians who had believed on the Lord were now already fighting each other. There's no sort of free card or free pass for the church, even at, at its earliest stage. This is the early apostolic church, and they were at war with each other. And James wants to bring this war to an end, because there's blood that's spilt, spiritually speaking, when people battle each other. There are bodies and wreckage and, and fallout when people do not resolve conflict. But he gives the key and answer already in verse 6 of James 4. Let me show you this. He says, but God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. With this verse, this is the key that unlocks these 10 verses that talk about how to close a battle down. In other words, in verses 1 through 3, James is diagnosing and declaring that there is pride in the church. And he says, there's a warning there that verse 6 says, God opposes pride. And and we're going to talk about the pride that's the seed of conflict in the church that he exposes in these early verses. And then in verses 7 through 10, he shows how people individually and corporately can get grace that's given when you humble yourself. So... Diagnosis pride, and then he shows grace, the promised grace that comes through humility in verses 7 through 10. Let's look at the bad news first. This is typically how the Bible functions. It diagnoses the sin with severity, and we need this diagnosis if we're going to be brought to humility in conflict. It's sort of to head our theme this morning I'm going to sort of set the outline up this way. The first step toward resolving conflict is redefining your enemies. Redefining your enemies. This is the hard work of restoration, of ending conflict. Redefining your enemies. The church, in other words, believed its enemy was within. And as people were fighting each other or quarreling or arguing, they would look at other people and say, you know, that person is my enemy. And what James does is he's saying, look, wait a minute, let's reset the stage and go to the source of this conflict by isolating the conflict down to what's going on in our hearts individually. Look at verse one. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What's the cause of all this mess, this civil war that's going on in the church? And then he isolates it down to the heart and he says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Who's the enemy? Well, well, you know what? The enemy is that person. That person needs to be brought to justice. That person has hurt me with their words. You know, that person, if they would just live their life a little differently or, or make better choices, my life would be great and we wouldn't be at conflict at all. Well, that doesn't pass muster here in the mind of James and what the Bible says. It says, no, no, the source of conflict is inside of you. In other words, you are your first enemy when there's a fight, when there's a quarrel. The source of sinful conflicts is in you, and the first enemy is you. That's what he says. He says, what's the cause among you? 
out there? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The word passions here is where we get the word in the English language, hedonism. Every time in the Bible, this word hedonism is used, it's used negatively. And James again is saying, look, you as a church will get thinking like the world, functioning like the world, drinking the world's Kool-Aid for what a, a warfare argument looks like and how that thing gets resolved. You're letting your, your pride and your passion for worldly thinking mess up the church. And this needs to invert. This needs to change because you have passions in you that are at war within you. You have a cause, and then you have a source. The word war here in verse 13 is actually a word that's used several times in the Bible and other places for soldiers, as if we have soldiers battling us inside of us. And you know what this is like. When someone hurts you, it's so easy to, instead of examining yourself and saying, am I a part of the problem? Is there something that the Lord can use this conflict to root out in my life that I can repent of? Instead of doing that, it's easy to just point the finger at the other person and focus on what they're doing wrong against you, right? That's what James is diagnosing. This is the diagnostic. Well, he moves from the source of the problem to the reason in verse 2, or I should say reasons. And within these reasons, I just want to describe it in this way. You should think, you know what, whenever I have an external conflict with other people, it means that certain things are going wrong within my heart. And that's what James is doing. He's, he's sort of lifting out these sins and putting them in front of us so that we can say to ourselves, you know what, I need to deal with me before I even begin to deal with anybody else who I'm in conflict with. Look at verse 2. He says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. The first sin here is the sin of lust. The word desire in verse 2, epithumia, it's lust. And what he's saying here is, you have a lust problem. Your hedonistic worldly thinking is thinking that you deserve something. Your craving should be satisfied. And it's saying that there is an unmet expectation in your mindset that's causing the soldiers to battle inside, that's causing inner turmoil, that's coming out in conflict to other people. He's saying you desire and you don't have it, so you murder. The word murder here is to shock the church. He wanted to wake the church up and say, what you're doing when you hate somebody or you send hate words towards people, angry words, bitter words, When you gossip against somebody, that's murderous. It could be a reference even to the conflict between Cain and Abel. Think about Cain. He's sitting there. He's wrapped up in bitter jealousy, which brings us right back to James 3, what we've been talking about. He's jealous of his brother. He's jealous of the fact that the Lord has affirmed Abel. So what does he do? He kills him. And the seed of that murder came out of this kind of pride. I deserve better. I'm lusting for better in my life and I'm not getting it. And so, and so I'm going to do something. It turns from words to action and I'm actually going to kill that person. No one is exempt of that kind of sin. I mean, that, that could happen in anyone's heart. Think of King David. 
cleaning up his mess where he sinned against Bathsheba's husband and then ultimately arranged to have the armies pull back and have Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite, slain in battle. That's murder. Could be a reference to Matthew 5 where Jesus said, look, if you're angry at your brother, that's murder. He says, the Bible says in the Old Testament, Jesus did in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, quoting the Old Testament, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. And then Jesus brings it to the heart, says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to hellfire. Serious, serious stuff. Where the seed of anger can get worse and worse and worse until it turns to violence. And the ultimate end of that would actually be killing somebody. Well, the second sin he brings up here is coveting. So he moves from lust to coveting. Coveting is the 10th commandment in the 10 commandments. Thou shalt not covet. And he's saying again, basically kind of echoing what he's just said. Look, you desire things you're not getting. You're coveting. You're giving yourself over to wanting something so badly that you fight and quarrel. Again, the word quarrel is warfare. It's ongoing war. It's feuding. Have you ever known people or have you ever been locked in your own mind and heart where you're committed to a feud? Well, I'm just always going to be angry toward that person. I'm always going to ever have angst with those people. I mean, we can't control whether or not things are reconciled, but you know what? The Bible here, what James is doing is he's saying we can repent of our side of the issue. We can do our own soul surgery And be at peace, even if a person still has conflict against me. He's saying, let's call a sin a sin. You're lustful, you're coveting, and you're fighting. When you're fighting and warring and committed to war and committed to a feud, it means that you have stuff going wrong inside. That's what James is doing. And then thirdly, he calls the church to think about their prayer life and says, you know what? You're actually... Not only being lustful, you're not only being covetous, but you're actually being a passive atheist. You're involved in passive atheism. Your prayer life is sort of gone. It's not happening because there's something going wrong with your spiritual condition. Look at verse 2 at the bottom. You don't have because you do not ask. The implication here is, James is saying, look into your life, look into your soul. You're not even praying about this anymore. You're not asking God to make this better anymore. There's sort of something stepping on your air hose spiritually. You're not, you're not having a free-flowing relationship with the Lord. It's like 1 Peter 3, 7. If you don't live with your wife in an understanding way, your prayer life is hindered. There's a ceiling. Something is wrong, and it's practical atheism. It's where a person says to themselves, you know what? I'm so wrapped up in fighting with people, I'm just sickened over my own self and I don't even want to pray about it anymore. I don't even want to take this to the Lord because it's going to do me no good and I know it's not going to do me any good because I'm angry at people and I'm just sick about it and I I don't want to have a superficial prayer time with the Lord because it's not real to me anyway because I'm so wrapped up in this conflict. Have you ever been there? It's like, look, if I go to God with this, it's like I'm just rubbing the genie bottle and saying, Lord, I just want you to fix this. 
I know I don't have a really good relationship here right now, so I'm not even going to go there anymore. He's diagnosing the fact that people are giving up. And then he moves into a practical, active atheism. It's like people are practical atheists. They're, they're people who are Christians. I believe James is talking directly to the body of Christ here. To Christian people who are living as if they have no relationship to God at all. And then they take a step in their prayer life where they move from not praying to actually going to God and praying to God and trying to force prayers into this sort of active atheism. It's like where you go to God and you actually do treat him like the genie in the bottom. You say, look, I'm actually going to tell you what's going on in my life and I want justice and I want my pound of flesh and I want you to make this better for me. Look at verse 4 or verse 3. It says, you ask and do not receive because you ask, here's the key word, wrongly. Something is messed up in your prayer life. You're asking for things in a wrong way. That's what he's bringing up. What's the wrong way? To spend it on your passions. Same word, hedonism. You're going to God and say, God, I want you to fill me up and make my life good according to how the world works. It's completely opposite of what prayer is. Prayer is a gift to us to communicate with the Lord. And often God uses prayers in our lives and he's changing things through prayer. And guess what? The number one thing he's changing is you and me, right? He's shaping us as we pray and as we try to seek the Lord according to his will and his word. But what James is saying is that's not how you're approaching God. You're not approaching God according to his will. You're trying to dial up your own will with prayer. It's as if you wrote your own Bible and said, Lord, I want not your will to be done, but make my will done. Give me my desire package. That's what James is saying here. It's all wrong if you're going about it that way. Matthew 7 is where Jesus said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. But he's saying to ask according to God's will. Not according to our own list of desires. There's a blessing that's forfeited when we do this. Look at verse 3 again. You ask and you do not receive. Don't you hate it when things are that way in your own spiritual life? When you feel cut off from God? And you're thinking, you know, if I could only have right relationships that aren't distracting me, that aren't dragging me down, that aren't bringing me away from God, then I'd be okay. But that's not what James is saying at all. James is saying, look, you don't need to think about those conflicts as much as you need to think about your own heart and your own willingness to obey in humility and approach the Lord first and make your relationship right with the Lord so that that will then influence your relationships with other people. Well, we move to the second enemy here. Again, the sins that he's diagnosed so far are this lustful passion for the world's way to do things, this willingness to hate people, this covetous spirit where you're just wanting something so bad you're going to war about it. 
this passive atheism where your prayer life stops and then this active atheism where you treat God as if he's the cosmic genie and he's going to fix things according to the way you want them to be fixed. And then he shocks us even more in verse 4 by saying things are so bad in the way that you are living your Christian life with each other that you are committing adultery. And the way I head this is you have made God your enemy. The second enemy in your life is God himself. Now, some people will say, look, the way James is talking in verse four absolutely means that he's talking to unbelievers in the church. Don't you have wheat and tares? You have believers and unbelievers, and he's confronting the unbelievers. But I think verse four, where James uses the word adultery, means that he's talking actually to believers. He's not talking to people who were living in fornication, who were in the church, but, but they were fornicating and not yet believers. He's saying, you are connected to Christ. You are Christ's bride, but you are stepping out of the relationship and committing adultery spiritually by doing this. That's what he says. Adultery. He calls it friendship with the world. Friendship here is the ancient version of friendship. We're not talking about just Facebook friends and, you know, buddies or, you know, people you just, you know, go fishing with or whatever. He's talking about this brotherhood connection that you have where you're living life together and you do anything for that person. That kind of friendship. Jonathan and David type friendship. And he's saying, you've got a friendship with the world that's that way. And it's like committing adultery. I think James perhaps was thinking back to Hosea. You remember Hosea the prophet? God wanted to shake the nation of Israel up. Israel, the northern kingdom at that point, was experiencing the greatest time of prosperity that they'd ever had since the days of King Solomon. They had health, they had wealth, and they got lazy. And they begin to worship idols and they begin to syncretize with false religions and mess around and be involved in temple prostitution. And, and they weren't being faithful and they weren't being pure. The 722, right before God swept them up into Assyrian captivity and he wanted to call them on the carpet and show them why they were under judgment at this point. And the way that he did it, if you look at Hosea 1 verse 2, is he said, Hosea, as a prophet, I want you to marry a whore. It's the word that's used in the Bible. Listen to this. He says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. What a graphic picture. If you're going to be this spiritually unfaithful, then I want to give you a graphic picture of how impure this really is. Let's take God's man, the holy Hosea prophet, and let's join him with a harlot to show you what spiritually is going on. And my friends, I just want to tell you, when there is fighting within the family of God, when there is disunity... And you're blaming the other person and living in a feud where you don't just make peace with God first in your heart. Then that is immorality in the church. That is spiritual adultery. And it sort of profanes the purity of Christ's bride because we are Jesus's bride. 
And when we live like the world, think like the world, fight like the world, get ego going like the world, live in pride flesh like the world, selfish ambition, as James 3 talks about, living like the world, the flesh, and the devil, guess what? That is adultery. And it's graphic that way. It's living unfaithfully to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us and it's being unfaithful to him and it's taking the temple of God and treating it like a brothel. Look over at 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6 is where Paul said the same thing. Verses 12 through 20, he's making the same comparison. He's talking about the law and he's talking about freedoms. And then he starts to dig deeper in verse 13. He says, God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. This church, Corinth, I think, you know, it gets such a bad rap for its spiritual condition. I think it's easy to sort of look down our spiritual noses at those Corinthians. They were involved in immorality. Can you believe that? Can you believe something like that would happen? There's even incestual relationships. Can you, that would never happen in our church, right? Can you believe they were, they were pitting one leader against the other and they had people following different leaders by name? Can you believe they would do that? Division in the church? What a sick place. Be careful. Be careful. We need to examine our own hearts first and see what our own enemies are and the own soldiering that's going on in our own hearts and start to take some responsibility and start to repent and start to blame ourselves and examine and diagnose our own relationship to the Lord, our own prayer lives. Why are we not asking the Lord? Or why, when we ask, is nothing happening? Why isn't there power? Well, is there fighting going on, first and foremost, inside that's manifesting itself outside? Could that be part of the problem? Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 14, And God raised the Lord, and all will raise up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members? This is body part language. Are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now look at this, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? You're bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. He's talking corporately and individually here, kind of going back and forth with the imagery of, look, you're a corporate church filled with the Holy Spirit of God, so don't get wrapped up in the world. Here in 1 Corinthians 6, he's talking directly to party, lascivious, temple prostitution, sexual immorality. In James 4, he's talking about fighting to the point that it creates warfare where you're murdering people with your words. Both are under the banner of this sort of unfaithfulness, this graphic unfaithfulness that the church can get involved in that shames the name of Christ in his church. And it makes God our enemy. It really does. Now, under, under the gospel, once you become a Christian, you can never lose your relationship with the Lord. 
But I believe what James is talking about here is the idea that we can strain our relationship so much with the Lord, it's as if God is our enemy. Romans 1 says, before we're saved, we're under the wrath of God. Romans 5 talks about how we're born under Adam and we're, we're born with enmity between ourselves and God. And we understand that. But do you understand that as a believer, the relationship can become very, very strained between you and the Lord? Ephesians 4 says we can, I mean, watch this. It, it just becomes something that's, that doesn't hit us because we've heard it so many times. But just think about this. Your sin... Your unconfessed, unrepentant sin that you're unwilling to deal with before God, it grieves, it makes sad the third member of the Trinity. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. God is emotionally affected by your sin. There's power here. There's a dynamic here where you don't want to be at enmity Look at the text in James 4 again. It says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, is hostility with God? When you try to live in two worlds and think like the world and and climb the ladder and step on people and, and you have ego in the church and you won't humble yourself, that makes hostility in your relationship between you and the Lord. And then he says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know, I, I just want to sort of open this thing up. Uh, we're going to be in this uh, several weeks, just looking through these verses. And I want to tell you something. This text hit me between the eyes all week. And as I met with people throughout the week, this text kept coming up as a direct application to their lives. It's a very powerful text, and there's something very, very freeing in this text, and that is this. James is causing us to isolate warfares and to examine it in our own hearts first. And the reason he does that is because we can do soul surgery. We can affect our own hearts by repenting to the Lord, by bringing the Word of God into our thinking. But you know what? You cannot manipulate, change, manage anybody's mindset in your own strength. You can't control conflict that way. And I think oftentimes we want, you know, we want the controls of the conflict. And we want to say, look, if you just would think this way, or if you would do that, if I could just bend your will right now and change the way you think, then this conflict would all go away. And what James is saying is, look, whoa, hands off of the controls. Leave the conflict to the Lord. Leave other people's wills to the Lord. Leave the conflict in God's hands and deal with God in a way that you can actually change something by dealing with your own heart. You can't change how other people treat you. You really can't. You can protect yourself. You can try to insulate yourself. But you can't change anybody else's heart. Do you see that? And that's so freeing when you think about it the right way. And it's so discouraging when you think about it the wrong way. When you think about it the wrong way, you go, this is hopeless. I will never dig out because I can't change that person. I can't do anything about that person. And James is saying, exactly. Deal with your own heart. Change your own heart and bow before the Lord so that you can cling to promises where in Romans 8 it says, if God is for you, who can be against you? Now that's good ground to be on. 
That's the ground that you can be on where you can navigate through a whole lot of tension and a whole lot of wreckage. Because you're no longer part of a civil war battle in your own heart. And you're no longer in a civil war battle externally where there's blood and tears and wreckage and damage that's fomenting and seems to be unending. You just step out of that and you say, look, I want to go to the surrenders table. And I want to deal first and foremost with my own heart. Humbly before God. And then you watch God work. And you know what? You might have unreconciled relationships that maybe will never reconcile with a transaction of forgiveness and granting of forgiveness. Maybe that's not going to happen in your lifetime. But you can get it right with the Lord and have peace with God. That's the hope of this text. And I hope it's the hope of this series. Look again at verse 6. James 4, he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud. Here's the promise, but gives grace to the humble. That's the grace that I've just described. Grace in the heart to the humble. And then verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. When's that exaltation coming? In glory. But if you humble yourself now, you'll taste it even before you get there. It's a call to take responsibility, naming the sin for what it really is, naming our real enemies, changing things up in the way we think. No longer, as James 3, 9 says, we're no longer wrapped up in cursing people made in the image of God or the likeness of God. We're not about that. We're not going to curse people made in God's image. We're going to respect them. Even if they're our enemies, we're going to love them. Love our enemies and pray for those that persecute you. We're going to live that way and we're going to fight our own world, flesh, and devil that tempts us in our own hearts. That's where I'm going to fight. But I'm not going to fight other people. I'll stand for truth. I'll fight for truth. I'll fight for God's glory. But beyond that, the fight is just to repent and live before God. All right, here's a few points of application. Number one, when you're in a conflict... Cling to the promises of James 4, 6 and verse 10. Cling to promises. That's my call to you. I know that many of you have conflicts that are going on, whether they're in the church or in your families or in your friendships or work relationships. Cling to these promises. These are not just commands to sort of will ourselves to obey. We, the Christian life is about having your heart melt before a promise of God. That's what God calls you to do. God gives grace to the humble. He would give grace even to me. Even after all I've done, if I'm just willing to surrender before God and call the sin in my life out before God, you'll give me grace? Yes. And if your heart softens to that promise, you're on the road towards peace. Number two, redefining your enemies is the most difficult step in repentance. Lust, coveting, worldliness, that hedonism, that hedonistic thinking, passive atheism where you just go, man, I'm living like an atheist because I don't pray anymore. Calling that out to yourself and saying, you know what, that's not good. Or when I pray, it's sort of superficial and artificial and I'm praying for things that are my own selfish ambition or my own will and not God's will. Dealing with that 
Calling a spade a spade in your life is the hard homework assignment that's the first one that you want to get done before you try to do anything else. There's a reason that James 4 rolls out the way it does and he starts with you and with me. Number three, it is important to grasp the depth of sin that exists within, the re- and within and the real potential for it to surface. There's a real danger when we drink the Kool-Aid of the world. We begin, we begin to think or convince ourselves that we are something special. It takes the grace of God and humility to really face how depraved we really are, how totally depraved we really are, how sinful our sin really is. It takes the grace of God to really delve deep into our motives, our attitudes, our practical, passive and active atheism, the way we live. It's the grace of God to soul search on that level. And I think it's the real temptation to say, you know what, I would never do that. I would never be that. I would never think that way. And in reality, God's word is clear and it exposes how we really are. Number four, resolving your conflict has everything to do with your heart and little to do with anyone else's. We can't resolve other people's conflict for us, but we can resolve and make peace with our conflict that we have with ourselves, within ourselves, and before the Lord. Let's do it together. Let's let's be peacemakers and let's peacemake first in our own lives and be strong and courageous in God's kingdom. And watch God spread out peace amongst our body and amongst other communities that we live in as we deal with our own sin first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time in your word. We thank you for your truth. We don't want to be the James 1 person who looks at himself in the mirror and immediately after seeing himself for who he is, forgetting what kind of person that he saw. We don't want to be that person. We don't want to be someone who clearly has a sin that needs to be dealt with, that's been exposed by the truth, and then we just ignore it. So God, I pray that you would let us do battle this week, not with each other, not with our friends, not with our enemies even, but let's call the first enemy on the carpet, and that's our own heart and our own flesh. Pray, God, that you would forgive us for our sins by the blood of Jesus, by his death, burial, and resurrection. Wipe us clean. And God, I pray that we would be able to then cling to the promises that you give grace to the humble, that nothing can separate us from your love that's in Christ Jesus, that if you're for us, who can be against us? Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're working on us. You're working in us. Give us grace to believe it. Give us grace to cling to you. As we cling to you, let us navigate through the difficult road that's narrow, but, but wonderfully fulfilling as we love Christ every single day, every step we take. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. I want to invite you.